I think Congress is trying to be like, we're going to make an acronym that'll make a word. And then the words that they use in the acronym don't mean the thing that's in the bill, but the mm-hmm. acronym does. It's dumb. Yeah. But no, wait it's a minute. Smart. I'm being it's redundant. Smart. I said Congress was dumb. That's extra redundant there. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Congress is very intelligent. That's why they have about a 90% reelection rate. You're right. They, uh, they seem to, you know, we hate Congress, but our own rep, man. Ah. <sighs> Once more into the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to an exciting second hour, or at least sort of exciting if you're nerdly and like numbers. Uh, yes. So this is the personal wealth coach. This is Jake, and the other and guy is... Jeff McClure. We're both McClures. We're both bald. We didn't give that disclosure out last hour. We have to be We're careful about that. We're, We're both, both bearded. Yeah. So We're both bearded. Re- please retain the use of sunglasses while driving if you're listening to us because the gleam from our bald pates may blind. On the radio? Uh, yes, on the radio. And the coffee that we That's are weird. serving may be hot. All right. So we have another question. The question we have is from Alan. The question is on Social Security referencing last week's discussion. Wait a minute. You mean you listened for more than one week? We didn't scare you away? And he has a, he can remember what we said last oh week. Oh my goodness. Um, it's scary. Do we believe Congress will reduce, reduce current reduce. recipients, reduce, uh, current recipients payments from Social Security for, or future recipient, recipients? He's receiving Social Security, so obviously he's concerned about it. Um, so let's, let's come at this though. They don't have to do anything. You said this at the end of last hour, Congress already has a law passed that says if we don't, if the trust fund, which is basically an IOU from Congress to Congress gets depleted, that includes interest. It's paying itself. Once that's gone, we go to only paying what is received in payroll taxes for the year to the Social Security recipients. Currently, that's estimated to be about a 20% drop in payment. And that's already in the books. So it's we got 13 years between now and then. And one of the things that is well known in Congress is that the constituency group that is most likely to vote is also the one most likely to be receiving Social Security. Mm-hmm. So something is going to happen. Now, it has been the proverbial third rail in Congress for a long time to discuss how do we fix Medicare? How do we fix Social Security? There was a massive debate about it in the election between Al Gore and George W. Bush. Uh, Al Gore wanted to have a lockbox, and George W. Bush wanted to privatize. Neither of those things happened. Congress looked at it and said, no, doesn't matter if Al Gore had been, we would have said no, because it's, it's easier if you're Congress to spend and wait for some other future Congress to take the, <laughs> the, the blame for overspending, because Congress is just Congress, right? Uh, except that who was in office in Congress in the year 2000, there are very few of them left that, from then today 
And by the time 2035 arrives, I don't think any of them are going to be left, uh, which means that they preserve their own self-interest. But the future Congress is probably going to try to preserve their own self-interest because they're likely to be in power in 13 years. Once we're done dealing with whatever we're dealing with, eventually I expect some things to come up. They're not talking about it at all right now, though. Based on Congress's history of dealing with such things, I strongly suspect what you're going to see is two things. Number one, they're going to extend the payroll tax to higher incomes than currently right. have it. Right. They've been doing that all along uh, without, by the way, raising their Social Security benefits on the tail end. Right. Secondly, if it gets, if we, if we actually arrive at 2035 and the deadline comes up and we haven't done anything, probability is they will look at your income level. Means testing. They will, it's really hard to determine a person's net worth level, and it, that doesn't necessarily equate to income. So they will probably look at your income from the previous year, and if you make too much money, your Social Security will be reduced. Now, if, in case you think that isn't going to happen, it already happened. Yeah. It already did, because what happens is now, if your income is above a certain level, your Social Security taxes, the taxes on your Social Security, which, by the way, are withheld, you get less Social Security each month. The more money if you, you have higher income. But we've already so the solution is already presenting itself very nicely. By the way, the Social Security Administration does not count the taxes you pay back in against the money they spend. Basically, it's a transfer. If you're in the let's say you pay, let's just say 10% of your social security, a thousand dollar social security check, and you pay a hundred dollars in taxes on that $1,000 Social Security check, that $100 doesn't go back into the Social Security Trust Fund. No, it goes into the general budget of Congress. That's income tax. You're not getting a payroll. You're getting Social Security, so you don't pay Social Security taxes on that. You're just paying income taxes. Yeah. So this, you're, you're dead on there. This is how they are currently means testing. They're only, they're not charging taxes on 100% of your money, even if you're in the absolute top tax bracket, though. They're only because charging you only pay on, taxes on half of it. Yeah. Well, they're only charging you on 85% of your social mm -hmm. security stuff. But the reality is that they could change that. Most likely, and this is what they did last time. Last time was decades ago. They incrementally aged the full retirement age. They made it go higher. Uh, it went originally, it was 65, just like Medicare. It's now 67. It, it wouldn't take a whole lot. We're already seeing a push on the other end to not require you to take money out of your IRA till you're 72. There's a law that uh, a bill that's been passed through the house that says 75. It hasn't touched the Senate yet. The Senate is looking at it. And so it's called the secure act Two, And it's not really, that's the name and the secure act Two just makes an acronym that says secure. Why didn't they just call it secure act? I don't know. Anyway, that's, because we already had a secure act, right? The secure act Two. The SECURE Act is an acronym. Well, I don't, the acronym doesn't make any sense. They should have just called it SECURE instead of trying to make an acronym. It's, yeah, that's my pet peeve. I, I think Congress is trying to be like, we're going to make an acronym that'll make a word. And then the words that they use in the acronym don't mean the thing that's in the bill, but the mm -hmm. acronym does. It's dumb. Yeah. But no, wait it's a minute. Smart. I'm being it's redundant. smart. I said Congress was dumb. That's extra redundant there. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Congress is very intelligent. That's why they have about a 90% re-election rate. You're right. They uh, they seem to, you know, we hate Congress, but our own rep, man, 
Ah, now we're getting into politics, but politics touches social security. This is not just monetary. Something is likely to change between now and 2035. I think, I think we'll see means testing. Uh, a combination of raising the social security retirement age, if we do it quickly, if we wait until 2035, then it would be too late to raise yeah. the social security retirement age. Raising the social security retirement age to 70 Increasing the percentage of Social Security that is taxable, those two things will keep Social if they're done gradually, will keep Social Security viable. One of the problems with raising the age, and it is a severe problem, yeah. lower income people get unable to work because of their age much quicker than higher income mm-hmm. people. Now, oftentimes, it's because of the type of work that they're mm-hmm. doing. And their general help. Right. So, I mean, if your job is picking up boxes and putting them on the top shelf at Walmart. It's really hard to do that when you're 67. You can do it and there's people that do it. I mean, and when I see people doing it at age 67, I'm just I don't like to think about doing it. So right now, so to see them doing it and loading it up, I mean, there are going to be some people that can work that long and that that's one of the major issues is that if we just keep pushing the age up, it's going to go beyond the point where people can no longer work. Then we'll be back to what we had before Social Security, which was elderly people that literally didn't have enough to eat. Yeah, and that is one of the issues that I've, I've read about, and it makes sense. People who take Social who, who because of their, let's just say you're a construction worker and you're working building houses in the sun, I would say by the time you're 67, you have gone well past your shelf life. You're probably no longer capable of doing in this weather, getting out there every day and doing hard physical labor. And so yet, people, they're, they're forced to take Social Security early because they don't have anything else. Right. And, and that is one of the issues that, that's come up. You can take Social Security at 62, you just get a lot less money. And when you were making low wages through your life, many of which were paid to you under the table, by the way, in many cases, and so you didn't pay Social Security tax on them, your Social Security income is likely to be very, very low. That's one of the issues that we have to consider when trying to save social security. There's, social there's security one is other, largely paid to people in the upper incomes. Yeah. There's one other aspect that could get changed that wouldn't be hard to do because we already have the system in place. When you retire early from social security, that means from age 62 to age 67 in today's ages. Um, if you make more than a certain amount of money, for every $3 you make, a dollar goes away from Social Security. And that's a big deal. So it lowers the amount that you receive from Social Security. Now, that means that you had to sign up for it and say, I'm going to do this. But if you make more than about, I think it's 19000 it might be slightly more. I haven't checked on it this year, 20 some thousand dollars. If you make more than that, then the, the dollars that you make above that number start to subtract from your Social Security. And I, I think that may be a reasonable approach, too. It's another way of means testing it. If you make enough money that you're living off of that other stuff. Now, when I say make the money, that's earned income. That's money coming in from a job, not from investments. So those are other kind of important things that can be done. The reality, though, is that something does need to be done. It is not a question of maybe we should do something about this. There are people that only survive on Social Security right now, and if they had a 20% cut in pay, it wouldn't be good. It would kind of be the opposite of 
good. If if that, there's a word for that opposite somewhere, I think it's mm-hmm. yeah. The, yeah, nineteen thousand five hundred sixty dollars. Yeah. So Before if you make full retirement age. more than $19,560, the money that you make on top of that gets subtracted in fractional amounts from the amount that you receive from Social Security. So that's another thing that could be thrown in there. There's a lot of stuff about Social Security that's more complicated than it should be. And some of it is based on trying to make Social Security run as long as possible. And some of it's just based because it's a governmental organization and they don't make it simple. Boy, did they not. Uh, but I think we've hit that question fairly well. Well, let's talk about something to do in a bear market. Okay. Sounds good. Um, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal that our Inquisitor John um, asked about, uh, which, he, which he quoted from. And it has a link to Jason Zweig's article from March 4th, 2009, right at the bottom of the bear market in 2009, or very near the bottom of the market. Um, he has some good advice in there and some bad advice, but he's got a couple of good points. Uh, that I, so I'm going to give him credit because I'm just basically going to peel through some of his good points that I think worked real, that would work really well. One thing, if you have an investment portfolio and it's down, I don't care if it's in a 401k, IRA, whatever, particularly if it's in a taxable account, this is a good time to take a look. Let's, let's say you have some mutual funds. And by the way, don't look at them and say, that one's down a lot, so I want to sell it. This one's not down so much, so I don't want to sell it. You need to be more careful. You go to someplace like Morningstar, you take a look at the fund. Is, is this fund really highly rated? Does Morningstar say it's gold or does it say it's negative? Uh, this is an opportunity to clean out your portfolio. Why? Well, if you have a taxable mutual fund or taxable stock for that matter, and it's down and you sell it, you won't pay a lot and possibly any taxes on it. You may get a, you may actually get a tax refund in effect because you'll, you'll have a tax loss you can claim. Immediately though, go to a better position, not to cash, unless of course you have a desperate need for cash. So what you can do then is this is an opportunity without encountering tax problems, uh, maybe gaining some tax advantages to move some things around that you wanted to move around anyway. Another thing, and, and this is one you have to approach very carefully, and I mean very carefully, where you talk to a tax advisor, to an investment advisor, this is a careful area because there's a lot of complexities in it. This is a really good time to convert regular IRAs to Roth IRAs if it's appropriate for you, let me underline. Let me underline that again. If it's appropriate for you, if your income is down and you expect to have higher income in the future, if you sell out of an IRA that has a lower value, a traditional IRA that has a lower value, obviously the taxes on it will be lower. And then you buy into the Roth, you're buy, you're buying low, and you have the opportunity to pay less taxes to move it into the Roth than you would when the market was high. Again. This is not a simple thing. Do not try it by yourself at home unless you're an accountant because there are implications to doing Roth uh, rollovers or Roth conversions that can be horrific. And I've actually seen some people sort of blow themselves up tax-wise by uh, thinking they could do a Roth conversion uh, when there were implications to it that they didn't know about. But it's something to consider with your advisor or if you're an expert yourself, uh, if you're an expert yourself, you probably already know this. So those are a couple of things you can do. The other thing is do your best not to sell equities 
in a bear market. That is something you can do. If you have the, if you're something you wanted to buy, it's well diversified. This is an opportunity to buy it. We have just had a 20% off sale on stocks, which means, of course, if people want to sell them, not buy them, which is really silly. But again, I, I, and I know I'm, I'm beating this to death, but diversification and quality. Don't just go out and buy something because it's low and you want to speculate in it. You, you know what's funny? This is, I actually do find this humorous. This advice, this education, this concept that we're talking about is stuff we said at the top of the market too. Mm -hmm. Be well, not the Roth conversion. That doing a Roth conversion needs to be based on a lot of other things in those situations. But when, when you're looking at why should you be in the market? It's actually better to determine that at the top of a market when the market's doing well. First off, you say, am I diversified? That's vital. Do I have good savings that are not part of the market that's in my bank so that if I have an emergency and the market's down, I'm not going to have to sell equities when the market's down. Then you buy high quality in the diversification. So you're not buying a bunch of junk that's paying really well because the first sign of stress, you find out why they're paying so well, because they're a big risk. So you you add all that together, and then you have enough in reserve to live on when the market's down. And this is something I wish we could just drill this into everybody's brain forever. The market goes down. It's done it so many times throughout history. Now, historically, the market is a lot more up than down, and you hear people talking about that regularly. We tell people when the market goes down, not if the market goes down. Because even if we continue to have more up than down into the future, we still have downs. And that's when people hurt themselves, when they get out, when it's down, because they're afraid. If, you have, if you're a business owner and you own a really expensive excavator, a backhoe, and you know it's worth a million dollars and you're having trouble finding enough work for your crew this month and somebody walks up to you and says, I'll give you $250,000 for your backhoe. You don't go, oh, that sounds like a good idea. I'm about to go away forever. No, you say, this. that's unreasonable. This thing has got a lot more value than that. People turn that part of their brain off a lot of times when they're talking about the stock market. You need to know what the value is that you hold. You know, we talk about diversification and I have met people in the recent past who have five large cap growth mutual funds and they say they're well diversified because they've got five funds. Actually, if they went to Morningstar and, and, and paid for the premium and they put those five funds in there, they would discover that those five funds mainly all hold the same stock. So they just really have five different account numbers where they're paying five separate fees for the same thing. There's an, another thing. Uh, I looked at a portfolio in the recent past where uh, some of the money is in in three of the positions were in funds that mimic the S&P 500. They didn't say S&P 500 funds, but if you look at their behavior in up and down markets, they basically acted like the S&P 500. And then there was some small company stocks funds, which go up and down even more than the S&P 500. And then there were some international growth funds, which go up and down about the same as the S&P 500. That was not a diversified portfolio. Now, there's nothing wrong with the portfolio if that person is interested in aggressive growth for a long period of time and can recognize that the market's growth stocks particularly can be down for a long time and you have a long time horizon. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the portfolio, but that was not a diversified portfolio. What's a diversified portfolio? Well, that means you have both geographical and asset class diversification. 
Geographical means you don't have it concentrated in one area. You don't have it concentrated in one stock. You don't have it concentrated in one anything. You also have uh, the ability to look at asset classes over time and say, over here, we have asset classes that in bear markets don't go down very much. Now, used to be we could say bonds and stocks constitute diversification. That's not true. Stocks are down about the same amount as corporate bonds in the last six months. The act of being diversified is something that if I'll put it this way, we never recommend that any of our clients be invested in a single stock, especially if that stock is their employer. That is like the antithesis antithesis of, of diversification where you're stuck over in the opposite as, as far away from diversification as possible. If the company goes under, you lost all your investments and your job. So all of your livelihood for the rest of your life is wrapped up in one thing versus you're working somewhere and you've set up an investment portfolio that spans the US economy and spans a big chunk of the world economy too in a right allocation that's designed for what you're trying to do. Then you have one thing occur and it doesn't have a big impact on your portfolio. Let me give you an example. We call this systemic risk and non-systemic risk. This, the risk of the system is that the entire market goes down. We can't really avoid their, the system risk. You live in the system. Tesla's a good company. I wouldn't buy it right now, but Tesla's a good company. If Elon Musk is tweeting and crossing the street and gets hit by a car, what do you think happens to the price of Tesla? Well, it goes way down. That is the nature of why no matter how good a company is, there are parts of that company that are risky that have nothing to do with the rest of the system. I'm not suggesting that Elon Musk tweets while crossing the street. Just throw that out there. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. <laughs> so have a lot of reserves. Have savings on hand to meet emergencies. Make sure that you're well diversified and then try not to sell in a bear market. And try to stay out of alts. Yes. And we're about out of time for this week. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give customized in investment advice as a fiduciary to people of high net worth. Um, if you want to give us a, a conversation, you want to talk to us, uh, the local number, it's voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week. Local number is... 254-947-1111. Or toll-free, you can reach that same voicemail or real-life people at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can read our newsletter going back lots of years, see what we had to say about stuff, how right we were, how wrong we were. It's all there. Uh, you can sign up to receive the, e the emailed newsletter there as well. You can contact us through the contact form or email us directly at Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. If you're into podcasts, well, we're available wherever podcasts are provided to our best, the best of our knowledge. Um, until next week, we very much appreciate you crazy people listening to us crazy people talk. Thanks for listening to The Personal Wealth Coach. We have yeah. another question, though. I think we've gotten that one pretty well. Um, well, we could actually go on for a full master's degree <laughs> we, subject, we, and still we not have, even begin to understand it. We have a follow-up question on the one we were working on. 
Does okay. forgiving student loans destroy money? No, it's the opposite. Creates money. It creates money. When the when the when you forgive a loan, it's income. Just ask the IRS if and this one of the things about student loan forgiveness is they have to be really careful because the IRS will say you are a low paid um, school administrator with two master's degrees, otherwise you wouldn't be able to get the job, but you're low paid and you have $250,000 in student loans outstanding, we're going to forgive that. And the IRS goes, you made 250000 plus the money you made at your low paid job. You made $280,000. You owe 37% of that today. Well, it doesn't actually work that way. Well, it is no. in the 37% bracket. Right. So now you're in the 37% bracket, but it includes all that extra income. Mm. Well, the, the student loan forgiveness has been tweaked enough now that that doesn't happen, but it was a really big problem for a while. So even the IRS considers that new money in the system. Basically, if you buy a car, you gave the money to someone to buy that car, even if you got it as a loan, then you're expected to pay it back. And the creation of the money is the interest payment that you're making on top of the principal. That's new stuff being made. When that loan is forgiven, all of that money becomes new stuff. The government just says, here, it's kind of like a stimulus package based on a loan, which is where the government got the money to do the stimulus packages is that a lot of people bought bonds, gave them loans with that bond. Then they turned and put it out into the economy. And we look at the inflation rate and we look at the money supply. We can see the money supply is really high. Uh, we we probably wouldn't have crazy runaway inflation if our money supply was still at the same level as it was in 2019. I just said something mm -hmm. that is very controversial. Let me let me mm -hmm. add to that. But that's kind of like saying we wouldn't be going very fast in this race car if one of the tires wasn't on it. There are a lot of reasons for inflation and one tire on a race car would have prevented it from going fast, but there are lots of other reasons why it's going faster than the other race cars. I want to point out here that Moody's did a very careful deconstruction of inflation and of the 8.6% uh, CPI that we had last month, one-tenth of one point, 0.1% inflation was due to the stimulus money. Correct. So this is the point that I'm making. The speed of the race car has a tiny percentage of that speed due from having the tire. That tire is not the, the in any way, shape, or form the only reason why that race car is going fast. If you put it as a percentage of the reason why the race car is going fast, it is tiny. But the race car couldn't go fast without the tire. You need to have extra money in the system to get inflation. But it's not the cause of inflation. It's the momentum of that money moving around that causes inflation. And people are still sitting on that money. It's still sitting in bank accounts. It's, not, it's starting to get tapped now that inflation is getting so big. But the money supply is still staggeringly large. If that were the reason for inflation, it would be spent already. Profits would have been coming out of that we would see it in reinvestment in business and so on. We're not seeing that. The money supply hasn't come down very far at all. So all of that is when you forgive loans, you're creating money because both the, re the college received money when you paid for the education and you received the value of the education, which is causing you to hopefully go out and make some kind of a good income in your life. 
And then the federal government just saying you don't owe anything for it. That's free money. It's money that didn't exist before. The reality of free money is that it's new. Stimulus money was new money. So it isn't the reason for inflation any more than the car tire is the reason for winning the race. It's part okay, of it, well, and One of the reasons the money supply is up, and I certainly agree with you that the money supply is is more than doubled yeah. uh, since, since the 2019. pandemic. Yeah. But the prime reason we have a large money supply, remember we said that the government doesn't really create money. That's right. That is absolutely it can hand, correct. It can hand out a little bit of money, but in, in light of the fact that, for example, we're talking about the, the money supply being $22 trillion, the liquid money supply in the United States right now. I, I think that's the number. Um, so wh- why is it so high then if the government didn't give it out? That's the M1. Yeah, M1 right now is $20,632,000,000. If you go to M0 or M2, it gets bigger. Yeah, M2 Much is my bigger. preferred number. I've got the M2s up wow. here. We're at 21750 or $21,754,000,000,000 dollars in circulation. Right. Versus uh, so, March or let's say November, December 2019 was 15. So we M0, got $7 trillion more hanging out there. It's a 50% increase. And if you go to M0, which takes all of that into account, it's $559 trillion, which is a certain. Anyway. Yeah, it's a lot. The, it's a lot. It is the lowering of interest rates that allowed banks that, that caused people to go to the bank or go to the bond market. Mm-hmm. As Apple did, as Microsoft did. Apple and Microsoft, for example, really didn't need to borrow any money. The, yeah, the the hundred year Apple loan that they took at right. dirt cheap interest rates—that's like one of the smartest things they could have done. I mean, inflation is going to be higher than that for the hundred years that they have it. And that's why they did it. They went their their credit was good, so they went to the market and they borrowed billions and billions and billions of dollars, and paying less interest rate on it. And inflation, which means that whoever loaned them the money is paying them to have borrowed the money. Right. Now, which is absurd, but that's the way it works. We've just covered a bunch of stuff and said that the government almost never creates money. We, in the stimulus, if you had a paycheck protection program loan that was Mm -hmm. forgiven, that was a loan that was forgiven. So that was new money and it was based on a congressional act. It went through a the SBA, which was a congressional organization, and the money was borrowed to pay for that by the U.S. government. So we have a lot of money that came from stimulus. We have a lot of money that came from easy money loans that were either forgiven or extremely low interest rates were charged on them and inflation was running higher. So forgiving loans doesn't destroy money. It adds more money to the system. It causes inflation because if you think of it from a very simple, very, very micro perspective, you're the teacher. You're teaching um, uh, kindergarten algebra, and uh, which has to do with sippy cups, I think. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> you have a $400 a month student loan that you're paying. It's forgiven. What are you going to do with that $400 a month now? Well, you may save some of it. That'd be really great. You might invest some of it. That'd be really great. Unfortunately, most people spend it. And that is new money in the system that was going toward paying off a loan that doesn't have to be paid off. It's new money, in essence. It isn't obligated to do something else. So 
it is inflationary, just only in the fact that it's generally being forgiven for people that are most likely to spend it. If you're more likely to spend it, it adds to the momentum of the money. That If you're spending it, it causes people to say, hey, I don't have enough stuff to sell. I need to raise my prices. If you're saving it, nobody raises their prices over there. They don't know what you have in the bank, but you know you have it there for a rainy day. That's not inflationary. That's where the momentum is. If it's moving around, that causes inflation. If it's just sitting there in deposit, it's not inflationary. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake. McClure. Anyway, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and this is a radio program where we talk about things economic. Sometimes uh, a podcast, too. Yes. And uh, it's sometimes a podcast where we don't know what it is, but as usual, we're confused. Um, we talk about things to do with investing and building a portfolio. We do not give advice about what you should buy and sell specifically, because that would be investment advice. And the name of the Personal Wealth Coach is also the name of a registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. And it's registered with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, which implies in no way that they approve of us. They don't approve, just period. They don't actually, well, actually, they don't approve of much of anything, which is their job. Um, And we don't give investment advice on the radio program. We do give educational information, and the educational information we give has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. See, you can see that really quickly. You've done almost all the disclosures yourself. You got one more. Let me see if you can. We don't pay for this radio program. We don't get paid to do this radio program or podcast, as the case may be. Um, we do have, um, a, an interest in it in that apparently a lot of our clients listen to it. And so it's a way of communicating with our clients. And occasionally we hear from people who aren't clients who have listened to it. And on extremely rare occasion, they, they ask if we would manage their money, but that's, we've done a cost benefit analysis on that and concluded it is advertising. Uh, our time isn't worth this. Yes. Our time is worth more than this. That's right. That's not so, why we do it. We're hoping to yeah. actually educate the population, which is, it's not, I, we don't mind it if people become our clients, just to put that lightly. Uh, but it, that's not why we're doing this. We want you guys to understand what's going on in the world. Uh, yeah. That's, that's the only last piece is that we do pay for advertising on KTEM 1400, which is the same station that broadcasts this. But the advertising that we're paying for is advertising for the radio program, which the studio also does in partnership with us. So it gets our name out there. It does get our name out there as well. Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio for, management and portfolio management, and that's generally for people with higher net worths. But we make exceptions occasionally, um, and so you can contact us locally. Voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people no phone tree during the week at. You can reach that line tool-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, jeff or jake at tpwc.com. There are... 
uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach. <laughs>